Friends, open your Bibles. We're going to be back in the book of Ecclesiastes again, this time in chapter 7. By way of introduction today, most of us, well, we like easy answers. Follow these easy steps. Buy this simple gadget, and it will solve it for you. And that's one of the reasons why Apple has made billions of dollars is because they've taken very complicated things and they've made them very easy. You can buy a cell phone today and you do not need to understand anything about cell towers or transmission or frequencies or anything that goes into cell technology. You just get to stream 5G and it feels pretty good and we're willing to pay for that to make somebody else take uh, the real complicated things and to boil them down into very simple things for us. There are some things, however, that are just plain hard, and they're unforgiving. They don't give themselves over easy to mastery. There are some things that actually take some time and some effort in order to learn. Let me give you an example of that. An example of that is learning a new language. If you're learning a new language, you realize there are certain rules that go into that language, and then you also understand there are certain times where that rule is broken. And you're learning the language and you're thinking, you know, I think I got this. And all of a sudden, it's like it changes course. And then you understand as you're learning that language is there's things called dialects. And it's like, wow, okay, I'm learning Spanish. The way they speak Spanish in Mexico is perhaps different than the way they speak Spanish in Spain. And so you're like, all of these roadblocks in the way of me learning this language. And we learn very, very quickly that uh, learning a language is never easy. And there's many things in life that are like that. They're not given over to very simple answers or simple mastery. One of the papers that I love is the USA Today newspaper. And I know kind of newspapers are on their way out. We're going digital on everything. And there's even an app for the USA Today. I realize that. But I used to do something whenever I'd go on vacation. I would give myself the pleasure and the luxury of buying a real newspaper USA Today. And I just love to do that. And I'd kind of make my way through it. And one of the things I like about the USA Today is that it has some articles in it that usually have some kind of a graphic. And uh, it's kind of fun to follow along with on that. And they cover some things sometimes that other newspapers don't cover. So one of the newspapers that I got years ago, and I've kind of hung on to at least the content of it, is the three most difficult things to do in sports. I love that little article. And I've held on to it and I've referred to it every once in a while. And do you know that one of the most difficult things to do in sports is the pole vault? I'm wondering if anybody here has been a pole vaulter. I don't mean tried it, but like it's been an experienced pole vaulter. Anybody have that? Oh, I've got a couple of them. All right. All right, Danielle, one word about pole vaulting. What's special about pole vaulting? Put you on the spot here. It's scary. It's scary. All right. Anybody else pull? I, I, saw, I think I saw a hand back here. Somebody else a pole vaulter? Cynthia, you, you were a pole vaulter? Terrifying. Terrifying. <laughs> Did you do it in high school? You just tried it. No, I was on the football team. <laughs> <laughs> I was on the football team. All right. Well, here's what I have learned about pole vaulting. Pole vaulting, the world record is 20 feet, three and a quarter inches, set by Armand Duplantis of Sweden. And uh, he set that on February 15th, 2020, right before COVID broke out. He set the world pole vaulting record. 20 feet in the air. 
How, how does somebody get that high? The average person here, I consider myself kind of the average person here, I would have no idea even where to start. And how, how, do, you, how do you even go about getting yourself up that high using this pole? Well, Lewis Bloomfield, who is the professor of physics at the University of Virginia, teaches a course on how things work, and he knows how it's done, and he says it's all done with energy conversion, transferring energy from one part of, of mechanics or physics to another part. And in the USA Today article, I've got it here on the screen for you, it shows how that energy is transferred. So they listened to Professor Bloomfield and they said, all right, let's make a little chart of teaching you how pole vaulting works. It starts with the energy that is in the muscles of the person who's carrying the vault or the pole to get ready to vault down the, the course. And as they transfer that energy from their muscles into speed, that's kinetic energy. Then the pole hits that little trough where it begins to bend and that energy is now being stored in the pole as it bends and that's in the form of some elastic potential energy then as the pole bends it begins to lift the person off the ground and it transfers that into a kinetic energy into the person in which they go up and over the bar and then obviously land onto the other side so it's all about the transfer of energy now again there's some things that are really uh, scary to do this for the first time. One of them is you're afraid the pole is going to break. And everybody says that consistently. You just don't know if that pole is able to do this. Uh, another thing that you're not sure about is how to plant that pole and, you know, what, you know what, how do you do this? Like, how do you let the pole do some of its work? I've got another picture here that I think really says the, the whole thing. This is one of the women's greatest pole vaulters of our time today. And uh, she's a, an American. And look at that pole just bending. And it's like, you know, how does that all work? And here she is trusting that this pole is going to vault her up uh, that 20 feet distance. I can't remember what the record is for ladies, but it's around 18 feet. And so again, you, you've got to kind of trust this as it were. And so standing on the runway, you've you're, you're, you got all these fears and you, these things working through your mind. And almost everybody says you have to have a coach. You can't do it on your own. Because you have to have a coach that says, I've seen this a thousand times, and here's what you do. And you have to have a total commitment that you are going to come down the track, you're going to plant that pole, and you are going to force that pole to bend as it launches you into the air, and you're going to give yourself over to the uh, energy and to the, 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 uh, the, the skill, as it were, of, of having this pole uh, do its part to get you over. It says it's a tr tremendous maneuver, and it takes tremendous skill over a lot of time, and it's never something that you learn immediately. Life is more complex, and it usually doesn't give itself over to easy answers. In essence, life is a lot like pole vaulting. Biblical wisdom is acquired in much the same way, through character, through experience. It's acquired through certain skills and observation and contemplation and experience and discernment. And biblical wisdom is never something that you can buy. It's never something that gives itself over to easy shortcuts. You might say, again, that biblical wisdom is like pole vaulting. You have to learn it over time and over a lot of practice. Chapter 7 is a big change in style. When we read it, I think you're going to notice it's a big change in style because 
For up to this time, Solomon has been going through and saying, I'm going to give you this life experience and tell you about it. I'm going to give you this life experience and tell you about it. This week, he has a very big change in style, and the change in style is he's going to teach us through Proverbs, through Proverbs. Proverbs are short, pithy statements that convey wisdom to us. They're sometimes poetic in the way that they're written, but they're, they're, they're little short statements that make their point and have a great level of uh, wisdom around them that conveys that to us. And what you're going to find out today is that this section is bombarded with Proverbs, and he's going to convey vi- biblical wisdom to us through the use of these Proverbs. Now, what I want you to do as I read this passage is I want you to anchor in on the words better than. Better. I want you to listen for better because it's one of the things that he uses very repeatedly in chapter 7. We're actually going to pick up in 6.12 because 6.12 is where he introduces the idea that he's going to expand on in, verse, or in chapter 7. So we're starting in verse 12 and he says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of this vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. For as the crackling of the thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity or Havel, as we've learned, or it's vapor. Surely, oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of the thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For is it not from wisdom that you ask this? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the pro- protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is, the wis- is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Lord, open our ears again today to let us learn about biblical wisdom. You have taught in the past that this is something of extreme value. And so we want to learn that today. We come in order to learn from you. And so let us have ears to hear today what it is you want to teach us. In Christ's name, amen. Notice that verse 12 is a question that Solomon asks. Solomon asks, who knows what is good for a person in life? And I have verse 12 up here again for you right now. For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days that they pass through like a shadow. And so he's saying, you know, who, does it, who knows what's good for us? And he answers the question in verses 7, 1 through 12. Today's passage is a series of better than statements. And better than statements are comparing one thing to another. And he uses six of those better than statements to convey something about life. 
The statements are all, again, based on this logic of something that's better than something else. And so he's using a kind of logic here of good, better, best, as you might imagine it. There's something that's good, there's something that's better, and there's something that's best. And he's uh, uh, arguing that the things that are best are the things that we should be pursuing. Uh, There's been a recent time in which I went to the store in order to buy a filter for my furnace. I'm sure some of you who have furnaces in your home have done that at times and you go into the store and here you are looking, you found the size that fits your furnace, but now you look and you say, wow, there's a choice here of the ones that I can get. And you're looking at that and you're like, I have no idea, is 1,200 particles a good filter or not? And so you're kind of you know, wondering about that. Fortunately, they have marked them all out by good, better, or best. And so you look at that and you notice, in my case, like the one that's the best is twice as expensive as the one that's good. And so in my case, I kind of gravitate towards the middle. I have no idea how many particles this is removing from my house, but I hope it's good enough. And so I I, I kind of come to the middle because I don't want to really spend the ultra dollars for it. And I don't want to go with the cheapest one. Denise might be mad at me for that. So, you know, let, let me kind of gravitate again toward the middle. There's so many things that are good, better, or best. For instance, there are hair dryers that are good, better, best. Carpet, good, better, best. TVs, good, better, best. Tires, good, better, best. And the list goes on. I bet you have some examples of things that are sold around that idea of good, better, or best. Well, Solomon is telling us something. Solomon is saying, when it comes to life, go for the best. Practice the things that will yield true wisdom because over time, it will be worth it. If you want to gain biblical wisdom, then practice the things that are best, that are better than other things. Practice the things over the long run that will yield biblical wisdom to you because ultimately that will draw you closer to God and it will yield a better quality of life, Solomon says. So the six statements today about something that's better than something else, I boil down to three statements, three things that are better than others, because I think those three encompass most of what he is telling us today. So listen as Solomon teaches us today about biblical wisdom, and specifically the things that are better that will help us get that, or will help us acquire that, or help us practice that. These are the things that are better than other things that will help us arrive at a space of biblical wisdom. All right, number one, death is better is a better teacher than birth. Death is a better teacher than birth. And you can see that, obviously, in the first four verses of what he says in order for him to review death. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment. The day of death is better than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. And so he's telling us something here again about death. At first glance, you say, hmm, Solomon, you are a dark man. Wow, this talk of death, it just seems like that's just like, you know, off-putting to me. And if you look carefully at the verse, you can see what he's saying. He's saying, first of all, that a good name is better than ointment, a fine ointment. Now, that also can be translated into it's better than fine perfume. Did you know that Chanel number five is still the number one selling women's cologne or women's perfume around the world today? It was developed in 1921 by a famous perfume expert named Ernest Bow. And it's held the number one spot for many, many years. In Solomon's day, they didn't have Chanel number five. They probably had something like Jordan three or Nile five, you know, some some good fragrance like that. And you have to understand something about what Solomon's comparing to. 
Now, again, in Solomon's day, there was a scarcity of water. There was not always frequent bathing. Fragrances were quite important, all right? In order to keep people attractive to one another, fragrances served a very, very special function. And so he's saying something here. A perfume can be of great value. But let me tell you what's even more valuable than that. What's of more value is a good name. It's a good reputation. That is what is more important than even a fine perfume. Now Solomon is also saying that the day of death is better than the day of birth. And so he's not saying again that the day of birth is is a bad thing. It's a very, very good thing. But he's saying that if you're trying to learn about wisdom, a day of, of mourning, a day of death is even better than that. Birthdays are great to celebrate. We come together to celebrate around somebody's uh, birth date and, and it's a celebration of life. But funerals can be even better if it's wisdom that you're seeking. So again, he's not saying here that death is good and birth is bad. He's not making that comparison at all. He's just saying if it's education you want, if it's something you're trying to learn about life and about all of things, death is a better teacher to us than that. He says that to go to the house of mourning is preferable to the house of feasting. The house of feasting would be a party or it would be a festivity. It would be like a birthday party or perhaps a graduation, some kind of a fun event that you go to. And he says that's a good place to go for, for celebration, but it doesn't yield you that much if you're trying to learn about wisdom and about life. Mourning is better for that. So again, he's not talking about necessarily the person who has died. They're already gone. But it's for those of us that are still around after somebody that we care about has died and we go to that house of mourning, he says that's a place where you can learn a whole lot. That's a place of great reflection. In order to go to a funeral perhaps of somebody that you really love, you're the one left behind and you're given this unique opportunity to learn about wisdom through the mourning of that person and in a much greater way than perhaps when somebody is actually born. You know, when somebody's born, there's a mood of joy in the room. There's celebration. There's excitement. You're thinking about everything that's ahead for that little one and the times that they'll have, the experiences that they'll have, and there's just a mood of joy. At the birth of a child, it's never really the time to think about mortality or to think about weakness. In fact, can you think about the insensitivity of going to the hospital to see a young couple that's just had a baby born and you come up to them and said, he's beautiful. You don't know that he's gonna age and die one day. You know, if you did something like that, they would throw you out of the hospital. The the family would shame you and say, never come back again. Because again, there's, there's just something that you shouldn't be doing that in that moment. But when you are considering something around mourning, around somebody that you care about who has passed on, That's when the mood changes and it's entirely different. It's a time of contemplation. It's a time of considering your own mortality. It's a time to actually reflect upon the things in life that are the most important. And every time I have ever done a memorial service or a funeral for somebody, it has been a rehearsing of myself of the fact that I too am getting older. My day is coming in which I will no longer exist on this earth. And it's a time of really caring about the things that matter the most. Solomon's telling us something. He says, it's right to grieve. It's time to mourn. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to cry. And those are all very, very good things. And they're an appropriate response to death. 
And for those of us that are considering that, it's a good time for us to say what really matters. And we're learning biblical wisdom at that moment that we're going through that. If you're one who places up a lot of boundaries and around that, you don't want to consider that in any way. He says that is actually foolishness because the fool seeks to be distracted rather than actually pursue and lean into what's actually happening at that moment in life and review their own life. There's something that I did that I have never regretted, and it was something that was a little out of the ordinary, but when my father died over 10 years ago now, I decided to do something that was done about 100 years ago in our world. And one of the things that was done uh, in our nation uh, at that time was if somebody died that you really cared about, you wore a black armband. And that black armband said to everybody around you, somebody that I care about has died, And, uh, you know, it helped you enter into a time of mourning. I wore a black armband in memory of my father. And in fact, I actually stitched on it some little symbols that reminded me of things that mattered to him. And when I wore that black armband, I had more people ask me, you know, hey, what's that? And I got a good chance to explain to them, my father just died and I'm mourning him. And that, that made sense to people. It's like, oh yeah, I get it. Some people probably never asked me and they said, I don't know what kind of fashion statement that is, but I'm not going to be one to make it, you know, so don't count on me to join you in that. And you know, some people probably thought it's some political party or who knows what, but I didn't care about that. I knew my purpose and it was for mourning. And I'm glad that I did that. And my dad's death and that even time of mourning was a reminder to me, wow, somebody that I look up to, somebody that I love, Somebody that was charting the way ahead of me is now gone. And it's now kind of my turn to enter into that space. And I know that with each passing breath, again, I'm growing closer to meeting my Lord. And and I long for that. Solomon's telling us something very important. The day of death is better than the day of birth if you want to learn. If it's teaching. If it's biblical wisdom that you want to get. And so don't become too distracted with life's pleasures that you miss miss the truth that we're all transferring from this life into the next life and this time of mourning is a good teacher to us it's a good reminder to us it's a wake-up call to the reality of the brevity of our own lives all right here's the second better than statement the second better than statement that deals with again acquiring biblical wisdom is a wise rebuke is better than flattering praise. A wise rebuke is better than flattering praise. How many of you love to be rebuked? Just raise your hand. I I see no hands. That's exactly what I expected because rebukes are no fun. Rebukes are, again, something that we don't want to hear. And oftentimes, most of us start off with a rebuke with one idea, and it is denial. Oh, he does not know me at all. I am not like that at all. And so we always start with that reflex of just wanting to deny what that that statement or that correction is. Most times, rebukes are very, very tough to hear. But what's easy to hear is praise. It makes us soar. And in fact, praise can be given to us that's not even warranted, and we like it. In fact, sometimes we can really feel like, you know, I, I, I kind of think that they're probably blowing this out of proportion, but I sure like it. Let it keep coming. You know, because praise is a very good thing for us, and most of us, you know, want to exist in that environment where praise is constantly coming to us. Winston Churchill was asked, doesn't it thrill you to know that every time you make a speech, the hall is packed to overflowing? And Churchill responds, well, it's quite flattering, 
But whenever I feel that way, I always remember that if instead of making a political speech, I was being hanged, the crowd would be twice as big. <laughs> and, and he's right about that, right? It, it would be twice as big if there was even a bigger event than him speaking. Solomon is telling us something that's very important. We are to welcome a rebuke from a wise person. It's something that will actually uh, bring value to our lives, bring benefit to our lives. It will bring more benefit to our lives than the person who is just offering lip service in order to earn some brownie points. And so it's something that's very, very good for us. Solomon uses this very interesting word picture, and I love the picture that he uses. He uses this word picture of a crackling pot in verse 6. Have you ever wondered what that meant, this crackling, this, this pot that's over these crackling thorns? Let me explain to you what he means here. He says, if you were getting ready to boil some water and you put this pot over the open fire and you went and got these branches, and let's say you got these branches that were thorn branches and you put them on the fire, there's an interesting thing that happens with those thorn branches. Those thorns are filled with air. And as they heat, they crack and they pop and they make a lot of noise. And so you put that little branch on the fire and it goes pop, 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 pop. But one of the things that's never doing is offering much heat to the fire. All it's really doing is making a lot of noise. He's saying, if you want to boil water, you'd put something on that was much more slow burning. So you'd put a log of oak on that fire if you really wanted to you know, heat your water. If all you want to do is make a lot of noise, you put on the thorn bush that pops a lot but is not really contributing very much to the overall boiling sensation of that pot. Solomon says receiving praise is exactly like that. There's a lot of pop, there's a lot of commotion, there's a lot of noise, but in the end, there's not much actual heat that's generated that's very good. It's good for feelings, but it's not necessarily of value if you're trying to build character if you're trying to build character you move away from the empty praise and you move towards the thing that is actually corrective the thing that is a rebuke because it has the potential of actually shaping your character let me give you an example of the false praise or the empty praise through a very common children's story the emperor's new clothes I think some of you remember that story, but for those of you who don't, let me just rehearse it for you. The emperor constantly loves new wardrobes, and so he has these men that are a little bit nefarious, and they come to the king and they say, we have this wardrobe that we'll make for you out of the finest of cloths, and you will be stunning in it. And in fact, one of the things, it'll be made from the finest of cloths, and here's what you will know about it. You will be, it will be invisible to everyone who is unfit for the job, or who is simple in character. So it will have this power to it that you'll be able to discern everybody who's unfit for their job or who's a simpleton. And so the king's like, oh, this is fantastic. Let's make that wardrobe. Well, the men never put anything on the loom. They actually act like they're making the clothes, but they, all they do is make an invisible thing and they keep on acting like it's really real. And everybody who's around the king, has said, you know, he keeps asking them, what do you think about this wardrobe? And they keep saying, oh, it's fantastic. All because they're worried about themselves and they're worried about being considered unfit for their jobs. The king even himself knows that it's, he can't see it, but he doesn't want everybody to think he's unfit for the job. So he actually wears the quote-unquote wardrobe on display through the town and everybody's acting like they see the clothes, and it takes a child to say, 
the emperor's got no clothes. The child is the one who spits out the truth. Why would everybody go with this charade? Everybody would go with their charade because they're looking out for themselves and because they believe that offering the king flattery is going to be the best for him and the best for them. And so they keep on going through those motions all the time, again, putting up with a falsehood and putting up with something that really is not true. Now, he is saying, compare that false empty praise with a rebuke. And he's saying, nobody likes to be corrected, but sometimes... That rebuke is something that has a tremendous effect upon our lives for good. Correction can point us to things that are damaging to us. It can point us to things that are harming our community, our family, or things and people around us. And so correction, rebuke, can have a very, very, very important aspect in our lives. Let me give you an example of that. This comes from uh, Pastor Tim Keller. He says he has an extended family member who refused to ever wear a seatbelt. He said, we would harp on that guy and he would never wear his seatbelt. He just thought he was too good for that. He said, I got in the car with him one day and he took the seatbelt and snap, it went into place. And he said, I perked up immediately and I said, what changed? And he said, well, I'll tell you what changed. He said, I have a good friend that was involved in an automobile accident. Like me, he was a guy that never wore a seatbelt. And he went through the windshield. And he said, I went to the hospital to visit him and Number one, it's fortunate that he's alive, but number two, there were more than 200 stitches in his face after he went through the, the windshield. He said, after that, uh, I found every good reason why I was going to actually buckle up. And so that's normally my practice now is that I actually buckle up. The rebuke in that case was something that actually made sense at first, but it even made more sense once he saw the results of not doing it. And so again, it was something that finally rested with him that this is something that's better for me than the rebuke began to make sense once he pieced together what the benefit was of actually doing that. So can I give you a little pastoral help here? You are going to have people in your life that come to you and want to offer a correction or a rebuke. And Solomon's saying that's actually a very good thing. So rehearse that in your head. This is not a bad thing. This is something in which somebody is coming to offer some form of correction, potential help to me. And this is the other thing that you might do is that you might actually go to somebody else, somebody that you trust, somebody that you love, and you would say to them, you know what, Uh, so-and-so, you don't need to say their name, but so-and-so has said, there's something that I need to correct. And so I wanna ask you, would you help me? Would you help me with this? They're saying perhaps that I've got an errant tongue and that I, I, I need to correct that. Or they're saying to me that sometimes I can be a little hot under the collar. I got a little quick trigger, and so I, I'm, I need to address that. Uh, what do you think? Is this something that I need to address? And if you've got somebody around you that really loves you, that cares for you, that wants your growth and your betterment, they will help you grow through that moment. Now again, that's something that's good for all of us. Well, none of us are beyond correction. None of us are beyond growth. And so Solomon is saying something to us. Praise, we'd all love to live on that, but correction, if you're looking for biblical wisdom, is actually a better thing for you if that's what you're seeking is that kind of growth. All right, there's one more. The third better than statement is patient hope is better than resurrecting nostalgia. One way to refuse to face the facts of life is to pretend that the good old days were always better. 
And it's refusing to consider that all generations have faced people who have fallen on short, are short of the glory of God. If we believe that, well, if we believe this, that, that there's, you know, there, there's these things going wrong and that if people would just look at the way we used to do it and do it that way, we would be so much better. And so let's go back and relive all of those good old days in our minds and say, wow, all these foolish people today, if they would just be corrected by doing things like we used to do them. And that can be a thing that we can get into the trap of saying repeatedly in our minds is that this better days or the glory days were somehow always better than where we are today. Let me give you an example. Example from last Sunday's Super Bowl halftime. Some of you watched that, and you know that it was an iconic time because for the first time ever in a Super Bowl halftime show, there was one genre of music that was from stem to stern the whole time, and it had been hinted at before, but this was just the, the full measure of it, and it was the uh, genre of, of hip-hop or, or of uh, rap, of rap. Aging iconic rappers like Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, and Mary J. Blige were the halftime show. And I think my wife had the quote of the day when she said, I think I need subtitles. <laughs> we're not really like proficient rap people. And so again, I understood about every 10th word, maybe. And so I was just like, okay, I'm not quite sure kind of what's going on here. But, you know, we kind of went through and then we saw all of it and we said, you know, all right, there you go. Now, again, here's what I learned the day after the Super Bowl and the halftime show. If you are an older American, you thought it was the worst halftime show ever. And if you are the young, younger generation in America, you thought it was the best halftime show ever. And it really broke down. There were very few people that were in the middle. There was people that were at polar opposite, polar extremes. And so again, if you were part of the older generation, it's like, ah, oh, ah, oh, just bring back you too. We want Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. <laughs> and if you haven't noticed, Mick's looking old, all right? It's like, are we going to want Mick Jagger on the stage in a walker? I, I, I'm wondering that. It's very, very easy in order to think the good old days are always better. And it doesn't just stop with halftime shows. It goes into education, it goes into politics, it goes into business. And it's very easy to think that the golden era is always the thing that we want to return to. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that is it's probably a fabrication of your mind. <laughs> You've whitewashed this past period as the golden era, and it really wasn't all that. And second... It's impossible to ever relive that. We can never, ever again go back to that. So it, it's, it's an effort in futility because we, we can't repeat it. So if that's not what we're supposed to do, then what does God say for us to do? What does Solomon say for us to do in this instance? And here's what he says. I find it very powerful, by the way. Every time I'm like, oh man, I just want to go back and do that like we did it before. He's saying, no, 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 there's a better way. And if you're wanting to pursue wisdom, this is the better way. The better way is patient hope. We are to be people who are growing into wisdom with God by exercising patient hope. What does he mean by that? What is patient hope? 
Patient hope says God's working even in times I think are bad and even when I can't see his hand. That's what patient hope is. Patient hope is submitting to God and saying his timing is better. His works are better even when I can't see them or imagine how he's doing this. Patient hope says things like this. I trust you, God, with my extended family in the midst of the relational strain that we are experiencing. And by the way, I've talked with so many of you who have families that are experiencing significant relational strain through the pandemic. And patient hope is saying, God, I don't know how you're working here, but I'm counting on the fact that you are. Patient hope is saying this. Our schools seem to be a mess. Lord, I don't know how this all gets corrected and worked out, but I long that you will and I long that you are. And so I'm going to exercise patient hope in you. Patient hope says, Lord, somehow you're going to bring civility back to our politics again. I don't know how, but I'm counting on that. I'm patiently hoping in you for that. Patient hope is this. God, I trust you for the child that I have that seems to have spun out. I'm kind of at the end of my rope. I don't know what to do next. But I'm longing for you to come in and offer the guidance, the correction, the health, the growth, the shalom over this life again. And so, Lord, you are getting my exercise of patient hope right now. Patient hope is never easy to practice. It's almost always easier to practice the sense of resurrecting the glory days. That's always easier. But patient hope is something that biblical wisdom brings to us. And it requires us to uh, have a level of faith and trust in God right now. I'm asking you this question. Is there a place in your life right now that needs some patient hope? Is there a situation that just seems to be so out of control? It's like, Lord, we need you to come in and exercise your power and your strength in this moment. How do you exercise patient hope today? I think that's a great challenge for all of us. Solomon concludes the section with one final better than, and it's the blanket over the entire passage. He says it's better to have wisdom because it protects and it preserves our lives. It's it's better to have wisdom because it's going to do things in our lives that are protecting and preserving to us. These are my examples, not his, but wisdom acts like like an umbrella over the rain. And so it's protecting us in some ways. Wisdom acts like money that's saved for a special occasion that you get to pull out and be able to say, wow, okay, this applies at this moment. Wisdom preserves things that matter the most to us. And so it's this preserving agent that's flowing over all of the things that matter to us. But here's what I want you to hear that Solomon says. He's saying this, practicing wisdom, it's a choice. It's a choice that all of us make. And if you don't choose that, then you're choosing, he says, the path of fools or the passive path of foolishness. And he says that has dire consequences to it. So I'm hoping, he's saying, that you're coming over, you're moving towards this idea of practicing and living out of this idea of biblical wisdom. Solomon obviously wrote the book of Proverbs. And so he wrote this book, I believe. Again, he calls himself in this Koheleth or the teacher. But I think Solomon is the author of the book of Ecclesiastes and Solomon is also the writer of Proverbs. And there's one proverb that I think he wrote and he wrote this and I think they're companions 
And it's Proverbs chapter 4. This is what he says in Proverbs chapter 4. Here he is. Think about wisdom again and the practice of this wisdom. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Don't forget my words or swerve from them. Don't forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. Wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom. Though it costs you all you have, get understanding. Can you see how uh, he places such a premium on getting wisdom, living with wisdom, acquiring wisdom? And it's not an easy process. It may cost you a lot in order to obtain that and practice that. But he says, in the end, it is all worth it. One of the most important aspects of gaining wisdom, of gaining knowledge, is delivered to us, obviously, through Christ. And if you're going to take a step towards biblical wisdom, the very first step you take is you would follow Christ. You would believe in Christ. You would know that he has offered himself as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, but also to breathe life into us. Almost impossible to have biblical wisdom without him coming and ushering us into that state. And so again, that would be the first step that I would have any of you take is to follow Jesus, become his disciple allow the exchange of, of his life for yours in order that you might be, have the capacity to actually grow into this idea of biblical wisdom. Well, today's passage is again a reminder of the importance of biblical wisdom. He says it's more important to us than things like a new home or a new car or a diploma or a lucrative contract. All of those things pale in comparison to the importance of biblical wisdom and living in that and there's many steps that we normally take in that direction. It's not like just to flip a switch, here, here we go, there we have it. It's living over that, understanding what God means by that, and sometimes that's a very circuitous path. But all of us are in the process of learning what biblical wisdom really is. Value biblical wisdom, Solomon says, because in doing so, you gain life. In valuing and practicing biblical wisdom, that's where you actually gain life. Lord, uh, as I think about this passage, there's many things that are counterintuitive. There are many things that we might not normally want to practice, but you call us, live into these things that are sometimes hard. Live into, for instance, taking a rebuke more than praise is valuable. That's, that's not, my flesh doesn't want to do that. Lord, you say things like, it's better to come to you and have patient hope than it is to live out of a sense of nostalgia of the past. And that's a challenge to us. Lord, we tell you today that we long for wisdom. We have an advocate, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, who's going to lead us into truth. And so we count on that today. We are saying transform us to be the kind of people that value the things that you value. And it will be good for us and it will bring glory to you. And so help us to be those kinds of people today. We love you. We love your word. We want to eat it. We want it to breathe life into these weary souls. And so we're humble before you today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.